for the week of January 2nd, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 567, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in the land of Omicron, I'm Michael Giltz. Well, I am the king of Omicron, my friend. <laughs> you are positive. Oh, I, at least I think I am. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive I am, but the test hasn't come back yet. Yeah. But well, you, someone in your family is positive. Uh, everybody you know is positive. You know, 20 people in the last few weeks who are positive with Omicron. Is that right? Yeah. You know what? It's, you know, thank you, Facebook. Thank you, LinkedIn. They're all, you know, I'm finding out one after another, these people are dropping. And these, some of these people I know are exceedingly careful. Stephen Garrett, as a matter of fact, our friend, Stephen Garrett from Jump Cut Creative, the, the, uh, he said he went to visit his brother. Turns out his, uh, brother's kids had it, gave it to the entire family. Uh, but uh, Uh, are any of your friends in hospital? No. Good. And I have to say, feeling the way I do, if I did not have three shots in me, I can't even imagine what I would be going through. Yeah, so get vaccinated and get boosted because that's the best thing you can do. Even if you get it, you may feel miserable, but as long as you don't have to be intubated or die, you'll be happy. <laughs> so that's yeah. the best possible. And wear a mask when you can. But there's lots of pandemic news. There's even some holiday news. It's it's January, uh, what is it today? January 3rd when we're recording there's snow in Birmingham, Alabama. It looks like a winter wonderland out there. It's really lovely. The frosting of the snow is everywhere. Not on the ground, so it's easy to drive, but it looks gorgeous all over the town. There's a lot of trees in Birmingham, so that's pretty. But we have a letter to the editor that wishes us happy holidays, the last one we'll receive until tw- the end of 2022. And right off at the top, a little quick note about Christmas music. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. We've already forgotten about this, of course. The holidays are over. It hit number one now in three separate chart runs. It's the first song in Billboard chart history to do that. Of course, Billboard chart history begins when Billboard starts doing it in the 1950s. Uh, But she's not the first to do it in the charts in general. Bing Crosby, good old Bing, he did the same with White Christmas in the pre-Billboard era of the 1940s. He hit number one over three different Christmases in three separate chart runs. That's pretty amazing. When Mariah Carey does it a fourth time, she'll stand alone. You know, uh, we have a German exchange student staying with us for the two weeks over the holidays because nothing says you do. Thank you for lending us. Yeah. Thank you for lending us your German exchange student. Uh, we gave her COVID. Oh, uh, oh poor person. <laughs> but, but that said, uh, I said, oh, why don't we listen to some of the, the songs that are hits right now in Germany? So I call up Billboard for Germany and th- there it is, uh, you know, Mariah Carey. Uh, with, with, with All I Want for Christmas. And then you have White Christmas, uh, you know, Bing Crosby. Uh, and then you had Wham, that, that, that Christmas. Christmas song, Last Christmas. And then you had uh, Feed the World. The uh, And I thought, America. wait, th- this is all... This is the same as in America. Mm-hmm. This is these are this isn't good. I wanted to hear the German song. Yes, where's the Rammstein song? Yes, exactly. Yeah, they were all the way down the list. Well, that's cool. I hope you check some of them out. But people are listening to our show. What are they going to check out this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got uh, COVID. <laughs> um, yeah, and, <laughs> wow, I can't even say it without coughing. COVID, uh, or at least I do. I, I think. I'm still waiting for the test to come back. Look, it's only been three days, okay? They say you have to quarantine for seven days, so they don't really need to tell me until like the eighth or ninth day, right? I thought it was five to 10. I thought the new recommendation is after five days, if you're not symptomatic and you're feeling better, then you can be okay perhaps to go back out into the world. If you're feeling poorly, then you need to stay isolated for 10 days. Well, look, 
since I may have it, mm-hmm. you should probably keep this podcast at least six feet away from you <laughs> and wear a mask while listening to it. Okay. That's just good advice in general. For the month of January, we, we recommend you just, you know, nah, stay home. In fact, this sucker is this Omicron. It is so contagious, but that won't stop us. We've got box office news. We've even got more pandemic updates and Broadway is not happy about those. That's for sure. And as as often happens around the holidays, a lot of people died. Michael promises he will be respectful, but quick. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills. He's going to fill us in on last week's box office, but also last year's box office. Yes, that's right. We're looking at box office around the world. We're looking at the grosses for the entire last week. And when it comes to the holidays or certain times in the summer or certain times in around Thanksgiving, every day matters. That's why we always look at the full week. You can see Spider-Man No Way Home making 15 million on a Tuesday, 20 million on a, you know, you just rack up the money during Christmas and New Year's. And that's certainly the case for that film, the biggest hit of the year, the biggest hit of all time for Sony, whether domestically or worldwide. It's approaching the top 10 all-time top grossing movies worldwide and North America. It's just a monster hit, which makes you wonder how much more might it have made under normal circumstances. Certainly the young people seem to be turning up, but are they seeing it a fourth and fifth time like they might have otherwise? The news is very good, though. Spider-Man No Way Home is our number one film. It made $315 million last week. It's at $1,369 million worldwide. A monster hit. And number two is a Chinese film. China is not showing a lot of Hollywood movies. Uh, when we look at the charts, uh, last year, China allowed 25 films from Hollywood to be released in that country. There are some movies from other countries. We're only counting Hollywood studio movies. Uh, compare that to 2019 before Omicron, 45. So from 45 down to 25. And it wasn't just because cinemas were shut down. They were willfully choosing to have lower box office and simply not release a number of Hollywood films. So we'll have to see if that continues. But when they've got their local movies opening, they can make money. The number two movie around the world is a Chinese drama. It's called Embrace Again. It's about Wuhan during its three-month initial lockdown. That movie made $84 million on its opening week. At number three around the world is Sing 2, the sequel to the animated film. That made $80 million. It's at $145 million worldwide. At number four is a Hong Kong thriller, another Chinese movie. It's called G-Storm. It's the fifth in the series that began with Z-Storm and S-Storm and L-Storm and P-Storm. I see another 21 movies in its future. This one is about (laughs) human trafficking, and it grossed $56 million on its opening week. I have no idea how much this movie costs, nor do I know farther down on the charts how much Another Me, this Chinese comedy that opened up, that made $28 million from the unsubtitled trailer. It looks like it's a period film about an actor who meets his double, sort of a Prince and the Pauper type thing, but in this case, actors, a traveling troupe of actors or something. I think it's a broad comedy with one guy playing two roles. It made $28 million, but what's the budget for Another Me? What's the budget for G-Storm or Embrace Again? I don't know, but if you do, tell us. 
Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. And heck, we may even read your email uh, at the end of one of our uh, programs here. That's what we're going to do this week. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. And we'd play your voicemail at the end of one of our programs. You can also follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Or you can like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Uh, that's right. Back to the charts at number five is the sort of movie that studios say is working right now. Movies that appeal to a big audience and especially young people, but they're not quite clicking. The Matrix Resurrections made $36 million this week. It's at $106 million worldwide. And right below that is The Kingsman, a period prequel to the Kingsman movies. Uh, uh, is that what they're called? Kingsman? Yeah, I forget. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is the play on words with the King's Man. In this case, that has hit $31 million this week. It's just below $50 million worldwide. Both look like disappointments. I doubt they're going to keep steamrolling. I don't think they have enough territories where they're going to make big bucks. I think The Matrix Resurrections has China up ahead. I don't think it's opened up there. But both of these movies aren't clicking. And if you say, well, it's COVID or this or Spider-Man, it's only feast or famine, even you work or you don't, I'd say they're both probably not that good. You know, let's just keep reality check here. They didn't get very good reviews. They're not very well received. Fans aren't loving them. So there's no surprise that they wouldn't make a lot of money. So the idea that under different circumstances or something is punishing them, no, it's like they didn't make a movie that was good enough to really click. Below that is another me, the Chinese comedy, and then West Side Story. That's an adult film that's not quite clicking. It's doing pretty poorly all around the world. $16 million this week. It's at $53 million worldwide. Not nearly as good as uh, Lady Gaga's House of Gucci. That made another $15 million this week. It's at $126 million worldwide. It needs to get to two twenty-five million if it wants to triple its reported budget and be declared an out-and-out success from box office alone. But it seems pretty clear already that House of Gucci will be a success and make money for the studio when all is said and done and thanks to streaming and all of that. Back to China, where a movie called Fireflies in the Sun or a pretty just entitled only sequel to the movie Sheep Without a Shepherd. It's all confusing, but this is a remake of Denzel Washington's movie, John Q, which is all about a person angry about healthcare. In this case, it's been made in China. It's called Fireflies in the Sun. It made $15 million this week. It's a good success story, $130 million and counting. Right below that is Encanto, which made another $13 million and passed the $200 million mark. And then a faith-based film called American Underdog about the NFL quarterback, Kurt Warner. Uh, that made $8 million. So it's at $15 million this week, uh, doing quite modestly. Ghostbusters Afterlife, Lick, uh, Nightmare Alley not doing well. But Licorice Pizza, still in a very limited run, not on many screens. It made another $2 million. It's at $6 million and counting. We'll have to see if that one can catch fire once it opens up a little bit wider. Certainly, they may not want to go wide amidst, you know, right now, can they wait a month and still have some heat? Well, with award season, maybe they can, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I know we're going to be talking about awards shifting and everything is shifting because of Omicron. I don't know when you want to do that, but but you know, just you know, uh, you know, wake me up when you uh <laughs> Well, well, we're looking at uh theatrical being shut down and all this sort of stuff. When do you open a movie? In India, they're delaying a really big blockbuster, a highly anticipated film called RRR. That was gonna open up this Friday, January seventh. And India's been racked by Omicron. They're closing their cinemas. Uh and the cinema owners are complaining. They're saying, Look, you're not treating us the same as restaurants and bars and other businesses. 
they're they're not necessarily saying they're saying we should be treated like them at best, but we're safer than them. So if anything, we should have looser rules than bars and restaurants and gyms. But they're not getting that. They're saying why not require double vaccination before people can get into a movie? Let's reinstate fifty percent capacity. We can keep going and not have to shut down completely. But the government has ignored them. They have shut the India cinemas down totally. So of course, RRR will not be opening. The same has happened in now. You know, the same thing happened in Belgium, oh. uh, where they they shut down cinemas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were supposed to be shut from the twenty sixth on, and uh, this one Belgian cinema operator kind of took it up. A very independent cinema operator in a in a s- small theater said, "You know what? Screw I you. don't care. Yeah, that's not- I'm 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 going to remain open. That's going to be my calling card. In fact, and she started a whole uh, like uh, campaign. And Belgium actually said, "Well, okay, yeah, we are leaving restaurants open. I guess we can leave theaters open too." But that's not what happened in Holland and Denmark. Holland and Denmark said, "Yeah, um, we're going to close cinemas and restaurants as well." <laughs> so, oh, well, that's fine. That's good. That's fair. If they feel like they have to be shut down and the science says we need to just completely shut down, great. But targeting cinemas when they seem to be at, at, at certainly as safe and probably much safer than bars and restaurants doesn't make any sense. So follow the science. If you got to shut them down, shut everything down. Don't leave the places open where you're more likely to catch it, like a gym or a bar, and shut it down at a cinema where it's a lot safer. Uh, but Canada, they're having problems too. The province of Ontario has shut down completely. That's the province with Toronto in it. So that's a major part of the uh, Canadian market. In France, they're saying, okay, you can stay open, but no concessions. Besides, you should watch cinema and not eat popcorn and soda. So you should be paying attention. It's it's art. So no concessions in France, which makes it almost not worth opening up, doesn't it? Because that's where theaters make their money, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Uh, well, look, they're going to stay open just to keep the habit going. Right. But, uh, it's it's going to be tough. I do know a lot of. I know. I know at least three people who said I had purchased tickets for the Matrix, but with Omicron, you know, ripping through the country, I decided to return the tickets and I watched it on streaming instead. They watched it on HBO Max, right? Yeah, and they felt guilty doing it. They were like, I, I can't, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I. It would have been more fun. But yeah, how many, how many people subscribe to HBO Max just to watch The Matrix? Probably none, <laughs> right? How many yeah, people do you? No, think? I can't imagine. Yeah, right, because that's what they're hoping for to drive subscribers. When you have good quality content, people are happy to pay that monthly fee. But it's really hard to do with just a couple movies. Uh, but movies are at the box office in North America. Movies grossed $4.5 billion this year. That's up a hundred percent from 2020 box office is up a hundred percent. That's great. It- um, um, Michael, before you go too, too crazy, um, I should probably tell you, you're right. Uh, it is up a hundred percent from 2020, Woo-hoo! which was, which was down because in 2020 it was 2.2 billion, right? Yeah. So, uh, a hundred percent, uh, in 2019, the box office in North America was $11.4 billion. So I'm not good at math, but that's down, way down. So we're down like 60% from 2019 still. But we're we're moving in the right direction. Globally, the box yes. office was around $21 billion. It should be double that. So that's just what we're dealing with. But $21 billion in your pockets is a lot better than none. So think twice about that day and date uh, streaming stuff. Saudi Arabia is a market that's growing. China is contracting now, partially because of Omicron partially because they've decided they don't want Hollywood movies anymore. They'd rather have their own stuff. In Saudi Arabia, they're opening up a bit. They hit $250 million this year. That's, you know, that's like gross of one movie, so you can sort of go on whatever. But they predict that the Saudi Arabian market will hit $1 billion by 2025. They're going to have 1,500-plus screens. An extra billion dollars for the worldwide box office, that, that can't hurt, can it? 
No, not at all. Right. So, you know, you see that? That's, I mean, that's what we're looking for. We've got a lot of growth yeah. in Africa and Asia still to be done. Uh, but China should still grow bigger and bigger. It doesn't need to contract. It doesn't need to get smaller. But if you cut off some of the biggest movies in the world, that's not going to help. But you were talking about award season. So that brings us back to the pandemic. What's the latest about the award season? What's happening or what's not happening or what's being delayed? What's going on? Well, there are rumors, uh, and they are just rumors, that the Grammys are going to be delayed. Of course, that's a big uh, show with lots of and and I have to say, David Wilde and and Ken Ehrlich, I think it's Ken Ehrlich, uh, they did a, a great job last year with Trevor Noah hosting uh, of doing a, a pared down pandemic Grammys. It was fantastic, uh, and I guess. Uh, rumor has it they're going to delay that. Uh, when was that? It was supposed to be like February. No, right? it's supposed to be January 31st this year. Okay. And just yeah, like last late. year, they delayed it. Last year, they didn't happen until March 14th. They'll probably do the same thing this time and hope that you know this latest wave has settled down and they can have a performance, even a safe one outdoors with lots of live performances. The View is back in lockdown. That's big news in my household where my mom watches The View. Whoopi's tested positive, but she's fine. She's at home and they're back in their own little cell. So that's happening all over television and theater. You know, we were always worried the theater was opening up too soon. We know just like going to the movies, it's a pretty safe thing. And here in North America, when you go to Broadway, everybody's wearing masks. Everybody is checked for vaccination. So you're in a really good space. Everybody's vaxxed. Hopefully they'll soon be requiring a booster shot. Everybody's wearing a mask. You're facing forward. You're not singing along. So your chances of, and the staff is getting tested every two seconds on the cast. So while shows have to shut down and maybe they miss a day or two or three and they can come back up, it's a pretty darn safe environment. However, so much COVID is spreading around like wildfire and shows just can't afford to shut back down and open back up and shut. I mean, that's, Every time you shut down, you're losing money. You know, it's hard enough to make money on Broadway. So it's just a disaster. Everywhere you look, shows are on hiatus, shutting down, shut down for the weekend. Nobody can know that if they buy a ticket, they can actually go see the show. So Mrs. Doubtfire is on hiatus till March. Uh, in, in London, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella is on hiatus till February. Uh, Waitress is closing, though that's at the end of a long run. The Music Man is just opening up. Sperling has tickets, but Hugh Jackman has COVID. So, and I think, oh, I know. Did you see he did this whole thing? I guess uh, Sutton Foster is she was you know, out too. Yeah, yeah. And she was out, and and he basically, and and this was so programmed. You know that th that he knew somebody was going to film this, uh, probably from the production, and then put it on YouTube, and then it would go viral, oh, and it yeah. did. Uh, and he was thanking all of the swings, and these are people that that don't go on stage unless somebody's out, so they only find out like a couple hours ahead of time. Hey, by the way, you're starring in this one today. So good luck. And uh, I know you haven't rehearsed it at all, but uh, anyway, I hope you remember all your lines. Uh, and, you know, they, they kind of do eight parts, 10 parts. And he was thanking all the swings. Yeah, and they're all the they're prepared to step in for, for five or different, six different actors. So there could be one Correct. swing who could cover for three or four roles. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and, this, and he was in this case, him. three quarters of the cast was swing. <laughs> right. Exactly. And he said, I know you're all disappointed. I mean, look it up. It's it's a great moment. Uh, and of course, two days later, he was like, oh, by the way. Yeah, I'm sick, too. Right. Swings usually are fully rehearsed. That's their job. Uh, but in this case, there's it's the show's very early in previews. And of course, it's very hard to rehearse when everybody's in COVID lockdown. So, yeah, it was even more challenging than usual. But here's the stuff that hurts. The Temptations musical Ain't Too Proud is shutting down permanently. That show was grossing like a million dollars a week. I don't think it had missed 
a moment. It was really looking set to be a long runner for years, and it had a good run, but this sucker could have run for years more. Same thing with Jagged Little Pill. That, too, has shut down permanently on Broadway. They were grossing a lot of money, too. Now, that's touring. Can you explain the, to me mm-hmm. wh- why is that happening? Because they were, like, making a million dollars a week. Because What's shutting, going on? shutting down for two months at a time costs you know they're losing you're going to you can take another 6 months or a year to make your money back just to break even on having to shut down for 2 months when you shut down for 2 months you got to pay everybody you're paying for the place you're paying for the space it costs the same whether you do a show or not you're paying for eight so shows what you're a saying week. is the staff, they might not people be able- still get paid so you know people don't just sit around and say oh i'm sorry i can't perform. i'll just take a cut you know they're like no you got to pay me so that it's really expensive. They're still paying the full cost. It's not like a movie where you've only paid the money once and you can wait a, two months and sh- keep showing it. On Broadway, you're paying money out every single perform, every day, every week. You know, you can't just say, sorry, I'm not going to pay you this week. I'll pay you next week, Hugh Jackman. That doesn't work. You can't tell the grips. They got to pay their, you know, they got rent. So all those people you've hired have to be paid. And it doesn't end just because, you know, you've paused the show. Maybe you have something in the clause, you'll pay them 70% when there's no performance or something. Now they might be doing that, but they have minimums and they have needs and there's only so much you can cut because people got to pay their rent. All the crew, all the grips, all the stage hands, all the staff, all the people on stage who aren't big stars, that's 95% of them. They got to get paid. So you're racking up costs of say seven to $800,000 a week, whether you have performances or not. A big musical like Jagged Little Pill, I'm sure that's at least seven to $800,000 a week. So if they can't come back until March consistently, they add it up. And you know, if you only if you only gross a million, you're only making two hundred thousand that week, maybe one hundred fifty. So you figure you gotta you gotta be open for another six weeks to make back that one week you lost. Then another six weeks. For, so suddenly you're going, my God, if I run for a year, I might break even for having shut down in January and February. That's not a financial risk you're willing to take. And so you say, all right, Jagged Little Pill has been on Broadway for nine months. It's gotten a big name. It's ready to maybe win some Tonys. It's been branded as a success. It's touring. And so there's no reason to keep this money loser on Broadway in this situation. And it's not worth it to wait three or six months to try and bring it back again. There are some shows looking to maybe tour and then come back to Broadway six months or nine months down the road because they feel like there's more money to be made. Maybe that can And happen. there might be a theater or two left. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. that's part of their calculation. But when you're a show, you're paying seven to $800,000 a week. That happens whether or not the show goes on. All right. Well, thank thank you for that explanation. All right. Can you explain to me what life is like for Chris Noth right now? You feel like you're under house arrest. What about him? Uh, he's probably not going out a lot, yeah. and it has nothing to do with COVID. That's he's, right. He's been fired. He's the latest bad news. He was fired by his town, dumped by his town agency, I should say. Uh, what was the other thing? There was something else, and then the Equalizer. Well, he yes. was on the Equalizer. So he's an actor, obviously, who had some women come out and say, "Hey, this he sexually assaulted me." It was twenty years ago or ten years ago? Well, five and years they, ago, no more. Well, five My years women ago, have come forward. No, it's not like yeah. distant past. It's been a lot of women uh, stories about women at NYU in Rolling Stones saying. He lived right in the midst of, you know, NYU is on campus in Manhattan and his home is like right there in the midst of a lot of, and a lot of people talking to Rolling Stone saying, yeah, everybody knew about Chris Noth, like sleazy older guy, always hitting on every woman who went within a hundred miles of him, flirting down and you're just like, you know, and like how bad to have that reputation. So this is not a couple women. This is five women have now come forward talking about sexual assault or rape. Uh, It gets, you know, more and more coming forward every day. 
just just a bad bad thing. And now he's lost his job on the Equalizer, a hit show with uh, Queen Latifah. So uh, that's not good. The women of uh, the Sex and the City sequel and just like that released a statement commending the women who came forward. That must have been hard because they've known him for years, but they're going to stand with the women. <laughs> and uh, it just gets worse and worse for him. Whether there'll be any legal ramifications, I don't know. But when you've got five women coming forward, when you find out that the women of NYU knew to give him a wide berth, uh, that's going to be very hard to come back from. Yeah, and NYU was a big, big camp. You know, it's, it's 50,000 students or 40,000 students. It's it's a big campus. Oh, I mean, it's it's there like, is no. It's a big deal. Oh, in, wait a it's second! A big deal in New York City. I know that. Oh, okay. I didn't. I actually didn't do that on purpose. But since you mention it, it is time for big deal or big whoop. Our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is about the Hugo Awards, which launched a new category this year. In December, at their annual ceremony, the Venerable Awards honoring the best in science fiction and fantasy named the best video game of the year. The winner, Hades, a game created by the indie developer Supergiant. That's right. In keeping with the Hugos, which continues to highlight the best work around, rather than making knee-jerk picks of the same old grandmasters of yesteryear, they, they, you know, Martha Wells won for best novel and best series. And most other top awards were swept by women as well, along with semi-pro fanzine. The, how do you, is it F.I. Fia? I, I don't know if you pronounce it with letters, but the FIA magazine of black speculative fiction won the award for oh. best semi-pro fanzine because there's a huge, you know, culture around sci-fi and fantasy and a lot of people who do all this stuff for love and they're recognizing the amateur fanzines, the semi-pro ones and the actual pro ones dedicated to sci-fi and fantasy. So that's cool to see. Well, somewhere the sad puppies are gnashing their teeth, but is it a big deal or a big whoop? Do you remember the sad puppies reference? There was a movement from some guys who were annoyed that 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 people were winning, like people of color and women and people who weren't like, where's Isaac Asimov? I want stories about, you know, empires crashing. They were annoyed at the direction the most critically acclaimed and successful sci-fi and fantasy novels were moving. They, they wanted old-fashioned stuff, and they were annoyed, and they started a campaign called The Sad Puppies to sort of just nominate jerks old white men nobody wrote old white men and so there was a backlash to the backlash and they've lost the war not just the battle but they lost the war because a lot of the best sci-fi and fantasy right now is being done by women the sixth woman in a row won hugo's top prize martha wells is the sixth woman in a row to win the top prize for the hugo awards that's astonishing in a male dominated genre historically uh, right. where you couldn't even see a woman or a person of color for decades at a time to see, uh, you know, it's a rich new vein of storytelling and it's great. N.K. Jemison, one of the best writers around, she won it three years in a row. Why? Because her trilogy was amazing and deserved to win. Well, you know, someday all of those those books and stories and and, and works will be in the public domain. Yes, that's right. That's right. The public domain. You know, Michael loves our public domain roundup. And that's where we cover the books, movies and other works entering the public domain as of January 1st. This year, it's, you know, as of January 1st, obviously, 2022. Two, two, two. So here we go. Agatha Christie's hugely influential novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd is one of the big, that's the one of the big ones, I think. Mm -hmm. But other books now entering the Creative Commons include, here's the next big one, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, Lawrence of Arabia's Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, and that's by T.E. Lawrence, if I'm not mistaken. Fair, fair enough. And, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and A.A. A. Milne's, here, this, this one, 
I, I mean, if you're Disney, you're just like, ah, how, how do we, how do we, how do we combat that? <laughs> right. Winnie, Winnie the Pooh by A.A. A. Milne. For Pete's sake, how do you combat? I mean, that's, it's like, oh, well, <laughs> there goes that property. Uh, and now in movies, you've got The General by Buster Keaton, F.W. Murnau's Faust, and The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, the very first feature length animated film. So sorry, Disney. I know you thought it was, you know, Snow White and the Seven Doors. It was not. It was actually uh, directed by a woman, no less. In drama and poetry, there's Sean O'Casey's play, The Plow and the Stars. That's a classic. And po- yeah, and poetry collections by Langston Hughes and Dorothy Parker. So, Michael, big deal or big whoop. And which of these are you already rewriting to, uh, you know, or writing a sequel to? Well, they've done sequels to Winnie the Pooh. They've had some writers in recent years craft Winnie the Pooh stories in the vein of A.A. Milne, trying to extend it before the franchise died completely. They knew the public domain thing was coming. So now I can write my Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh can, you know, start dating Piglet or who knows what crazy things people will do. But anyway, I'm interested by that one, of course, because just like Mickey Mouse, Disney fights to keep all this stuff under copyright. They'll argue, of course, that the visual stuff of Winnie the Pooh even though it's based on the, you know, illustrations by Shepard, which should also be in the public domain, they're going to try and argue, oh, no, 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 that's still copyrighted. You know, you can't do a Winnie the Pooh doll because, you know, we've done, you know. So they're going to do everything they can to try and make sure everything they've spun off from Winnie the Pooh doesn't become bastardized by cheap ripoffs or even creative, thoughtful ripoffs by people who can now be free to play with that story and do with it what they want. So that's interesting. But I'm also annoyed. I'm annoyed. Well, because... Uh, there's a Winnie the Pooh box set. You know, there are children's books and all types of books. They work in some formats. They don't work in another. For example, if you go to the store, you can buy the complete Winnie the Pooh, where you've got Winnie the Pooh and the two collections of essays and poems, like Now We Are Six and When We Were Young, and uh, the other Winnie the Pooh, The House at Pooh Corner, right? Those are two collections of short stories and two collections of poetry, light poetry. You can buy them in one big fat volume, like, oh, the complete Winnie the Pooh. You think, oh, that's a great gift, right? Except it's not. It's this huge, massive coffee table type hardcover. No little child would ever hold it. It would like overwhelm them. It's heavy for an adult. It's something you put on the shelf and never actually touch. But they don't deserve to be in paperbacks. But there's a collection of four slim hardcovers in a lovely little box set. I had it as a kid. It's a good size. It's durable. It's very impressive and nice looking, but it's the right size. Kids can read it on their own once they're old enough. It's easy for you to share with them. It's easy to pull out and you've got you know the individual volumes. It's lovely. That is my go-to. You've just had a baby gift. You have a baby. And I know, of course, it's way too soon. They're not going to read it for years, but that's just what I send off because why send them the fifth cat in the hat book, right? They're going to get where the right. wild things are. I'm jumping ahead, baby. I love music. I love books. So I send them this one. It's what I love sending out. It's one of my favorite books. And damn it, I just did it in December. If I'd waited a few weeks, I could have saved some money. <laughs> I could have gotten the, you know, the, the you time. Re- yeah. I could have gotten <laughs> the Vietnamese whip off and, you know, for four bucks instead of the rather pricey. But uh, it was worth every penny to have the official diversion. And I will continue to buy that official version because it looks nice and it's well packaged. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm actually going to write a sequel to Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. It's going to be called The Sun Also Sets, you know. It rises <laughs> and it sets. So Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were talking about awards, uh, weren't we? Yes, we were. Yes. And here's the thing. Speaking of awards, we knew award shows, uh, you know, when they're on TV, they've all fallen out of favor, but we didn't realize they'd fallen this far. They have fallen so far for the first time in history. The Academy Awards telecast is not, get this, not in the top 10 of the most watched TV shows of the year here in the United oh States. Oh my God, it's the end of an era. 
Will it come well, back? It has, I don't know if it ever will. I don't know, but it has always been in the top 10 because it's live and you want to see it live and you don't want somebody ruining it. Right. Uh, and this year, the top 10 is mostly, uh, it's mostly football. And by okay? that, we mean a boring American football. Yeah. The kind that is played ironically, both with feet, but also you're allowed to touch the ball. So <laughs> it should be called handball. Anyway, uh, there, that has two exceptions, though. Those exceptions are the series premiere of Queen Latifah's The Equalizer, which I believe is the only scripted program in the top 10. And why is uh, it in the top 10? Because it debuted after the Super Bowl. <laughs> so that's right. It's almost and, a football-related you know, thing, yeah. Yeah, and I think it was, uh, well, no, and then Oprah in, um, Oprah's interview with Meghan and Harry. That's, that was also in the top That's the 10. only thing in the top 10. The biggest, you know, practically one of the biggest stories of the year, the prince and princess going rogue, moving to America, leaving the palace, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Poof. And I think that in the top 50, there's only a handful of scripted shows, like maybe five. I don't know. In I the top to 40, there's only one more. There's two in the top 10 and one more, and that's the single episode of 60 Minutes. And that's the only one in the top 40 other than sports. You've got the Olympics, you've got football, you've got some baseball in there, basketball, you know, March Madness and pro basketball. So it's all sports, baby. So if you're wondering why Netflix doesn't want to get into the sports realm, they're like, too much money. <laughs> too many people vying for, I'll, we'll stay over here. You all fight for sports. It's great, but never mind. We like repeatability and we like to spend our money on stuff you can watch again and again and again. I think that's their that's thinking right, and I think they're right. But but wait, I mean, what about the Oscars? It wasn't in the top 10. Oh. In fact, it wasn't in the top 40. What? In fact, it, yeah, wait, I'm looking here. It, oh, my. It didn't make the top 100? Oh, my Yikes. God. B b is this a big deal or a big whoop? That is a big deal. Dropping out of the top 10 is bad. Dropping out of the top 100 is unthinkable. One of the guaranteed ad bets of the year, always right at the top of the list, you know, the Super Bowl and then the Academy Awards. Money in the bank, but now not anymore. And in fact, ABC renegotiated with the Academy Awards people, the Ampass people, and they said, yeah, you know, about that annual fee we pay you, we're going to reduce that a little bit. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. So they've cut down like 12 or $15 million out of the money they pay. This was, of course, buried in something that they released on New Year's Eve. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, and by the way, they cut the money that they pay. <laughs> yeah. So, whenever you have bad news, oh, we we looked for vote fraud in Texas and we found absolutely nothing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, the governor, ah, just, yeah, it's not important, not important. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. So yeah, that's bad. I think they can come back. There's no reason why when people can go to the movies and the shows can be done well that you won't want to turn on the Grammys and see big stars perform big songs. Sure. Do you want to see big celebrities winning Oscars? Do you want to see Tom Holland up for Best Actor for Spider-Man? It's not going to happen, but that would be exciting. So I don't think that they're done forever. They can still have value. They're live events. They're going to matter again. I bet it comes back into the top 10 or 20 in, you know, if not this year, next year. You know, I think it'll yeah, happen again, but it's, it's going to be hard and it's just not the same as it was before for sure. Well, you know, we are going to be seeing some people, uh, in the new year and that's because they didn't make it to the new year or they did make it to the new year, but barely. And then they didn't make it to the second day of the new year. I looked this up because it's interesting. I said, is it an urban myth that people die over the holidays? You know, my thought was, yes, someone dies around Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. You go, oh, they died on Christmas. But if they died on September 4th, you'd be like, whatever, right? You'd be sad that they died, but you wouldn't remember the fact that they died on September 4th. That wouldn't impact you. But you remember when they died, like on their birthday or around the holidays. So, Like I Carrie thought, Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, you right. know, that kind of thing. You think, okay, yeah. this is just 
probably pop culture and just, you know, it's our impression because we're not really paying attention how many people die in February, March. And actually, no, more people do die in winter. So that's one big factor. But when they hold for things like previous health conditions and, and money, so you have more access to health care, looking at it all and looking at death statistics, it looks like people dying of natural causes, which is the vast majority of people, they are more likely to die around the holidays. And it's not because of suicide. Uh, that actually peaks um, in the early fall or something. I forget now, but that peaks at a different time of year. So it's not even suicide. So people do tend to die more around Christmas and Thanksgiving than New Year. They've always sort of tried to figure out why, or oh, is it because they're well? No, is it because of this? No, is it because of that? No. One possibility they say is that people may be less likely to go get the care they need. They want to be with their yeah, family. They don't want to go on Christmas Eve to the hospital. They don't want to go. They're like, oh, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. And they sort of gut it out. And then you wait when you're sick. Not good. You know, if you wait three days, it could be a lot worse if you'd gone three days earlier. So if you don't feel good, just go in anyway and get checked, you know? <laughs> Well, I know that that you you have a, a number of people here. I know we're going to talk about a couple of them, uh, probably more than others, uh, and that that's only because we have more to say about them and more uh, personal reference to them. Yeah, uh, Emmy Emmy winning writer and producer John Bauman. He died at the age of sixty four. I knew nothing about this guy. I mean, I know the name, but did you know him? He's a, he's a white guy who had big success working with black talent. Uh, yes, interesting career. He went to Harvard. And he was an editor at the National Lampoon, so that makes sense. But he graduated with an MBA, a business degree, and then he went to work for Pepsi. You're like, okay, all right. And then he said, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I don't know they actually said that, but he kind of did. And he jumped from Pepsi to Saturday Night Live. How the hell does he do that? I can't get to Saturday Night Live, and I'm in the business. Can you yeah, jump from I, where you are to a head of a studio? I mean, if you right were right now, I can't jump anywhere. If you no. were an Uber driver, I don't want to be an Uber driver anymore. I think I'll work at Saturday Night Live. How does he do that? I don't know. How, obviously, it helps when you work at National Lampoon. Uh, but boom, he went to SNL. He won an Emmy there. Two years later, he became one of the first white writers on the groundbreaking sketch comedy show in Living Color, a groundbreaking show for sure. And soon he was the head writer. Uh, director John Ridley, who was in this, I think, in the room at the time as a writer, he said Bowman was a great mentor to many people of color. He co-created the sitcom Martin with Martin Lawrence, and he wrote or produced or contributed to everything from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air to It's Gary Shandling's show, that's a very white show, to producing the last four years of Murphy Brown and on and on. So a cool guy who sadly died at the age of 64, but more unexpected, uh, that's certainly unexpected to his family and friends, but also a big shock was the death, I think, by heart attack of director Jean-Marc Vallée. How do you say his name? Vallée. Vallée. Thank yeah, you very much. Actually, he died yeah, at 58. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. Jean-Marc Vallée. He died unexpectedly. He's Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning director of Dallas Buyers Club, the movie Wild, and the TV dramas Big Little Lies, none of which I really liked. Sorry about that, Jean-Marc. And he was kind of a dick to Andrew Arnold, a great director. But nonetheless, a shocking, sad, unexpected death from a guy who was on top of the world in terms of critical acclaim and popular success. Did you like him? Did you watch his stuff? Uh, I liked D Dallas Buyers Club okay. Uh, I never saw Wild. Uh, never saw Big Little Lies. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you were right. It is Jean-Marc Vallée. Ah. Uh, Vallée, sorry, yes. Oh, it is. Okay, good to know. Uh, Grace Mirabella of Vogue dies. I recognize the name. Did you? Yes, I did, because I actually was one of the charter subscribers to Mirabella magazine. I did not realize at the time that it was meant for women. What made you subscribe to it? 
I was like, oh, a new magazine. I should subscribe. And I didn't realize it. I was young. I was like in my, I think I was like. You subscribed to a magazine you knew nothing about because why? Because because of Grace Mirabella. They were like, no, this person is great. You have to, you know. And And then you said, I love those pumps. (laughs) And then then I realized, I was like, you know, there's nothing really. Are you a cross dresser? I was like, what is going? It wasn't, it didn't start off all about women. And then it went, it, it, it it veered hard like after the sec first now, two issues. most most men who enjoy wear women's clothing for whatever reason are in fact straight if you are it's okay you can tell us no i mean look uh, i did not it was a good magazine okay well she was great she championed fashion that women would actually wear that's what she was known and her reign at vogue ended in the 80s when of course she went off to create a magazine made just for sperling but i love this quote from the new york times as to the reason she was pushed from her perch she wrote that the 80s were quote an emperor has no clothes era start to finish clothes she said were about labels designers were about celebrities and it was all on a bigger and bigger scale about money Fashion had degenerated, she wrote, into a self-reverential game full of jokes and pastiches that amused the fashion community enormously and did nothing at all for the women shopping and trying to find something to wear. I'm like, you're my kind of gal. And I'm sure you don't know Bronsky Beat, but that was a key early 80s group with one really big hit. Uh, the, the musician Steve Bronsky, who helped found that band, died at the age of 61. Uh, they were all out. This trio was all openly gay back in the early 80s when being gay had just barely been legalized in, in the UK. Let's not forget that. Their hit, Small Town Boy, was a dance and pop chart hit, detailing life for a young gay man. Their debut album was called The Age of Consent. And when you bought the album, or the CD in my case, it included a list of most countries in the world and the age of consent for gay men in each of them. <laughs> like, this, oh, is wow. how, this is how old you can be. And this country, they'll kill you. And that country, they'll arrest you. And this country, you can have it. And they also pointed out, this is the age of consent for gay people, like, say, 25. But if you're straight, you can start having sex at 16 or 18 because the ages of consent were not the same. Like to to choose to have sex with someone of the same gender in that era, and still in many countries today, was different. Like you wanted to have sex with a girl, you decided sixteen, you're ready, you're ready, fine, go ahead. You're gay, they're like, no, 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 twenty one. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll arrest you. So that's sort of the discrimination that gay people faced. But it was a pioneering group. They went on for a long time, but really, when Jim, singer Jimmy Somerville left, he had this great falsetto voice. He went solo after like two years. Uh, he's the only remaining member of the original trio, but they were a, a cool group and important to me. I know you like New Orleans. I know you've been there. What's a cool thing there? The Preservation Hall, which uh, I thought it was around since like the 1920s. I didn't realize that it was only around since 1961 when Sa- Sandra and Alan Jaffe, who were married, they were on their way home from their honeymoon in Mexico. They stopped off in New Orleans to to visit uh, some some friends, and uh, they they wandered into this tiny little, uh, I don't know, it was like an art exhibit gallery, 30 feet by 20 feet. That's so how like, big this is. It's like space. a studio apartment. <laughs> right. And, and the guy said, well, I'm moving next door to a bigger place, but I'll rent this to you for $400. And you can, and they start, they rented the place and started putting on jazz shows. It's called Preservation Hall. Uh, and of course they have a jazz band that tours around the world. Actually, the jazz band now might be more uh, well-known at least than the actual place. It cost zero to get in when they first started. They'd ask for a donation. Then it cost a dollar. I think when I went, it was like $2. It's now $30 to get into that place at a minimum. By the way, it only seats 50 people. 
I should I should have pointed that. Then feeds fifty people. They have no alcohol license. You sit on benches. They had no air conditioning until twenty nineteen. So it's a tiny little space, but it really it's called Preservation Hall because they help preserve jazz. Uh, quote: This is from George Wine, the guy who produced the Newport Jazz Festival for many years and the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Fest. There is no question that Preservation Hall saved New Orleans jazz. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Sandra Jaffe, she died at the age of eighty three. But her legacy lives on. The Preservation Hall Jazz Band is great. I have a number of their albums, too. But also, another talented person is actor and writer Max Julian. Did you ever see the, the 70s film The Mac? Yeah. Yeah. God, that was a long time ago. Yeah, well, yeah. sure. It's from the 70s. He died at the age of 88. He's a key figure in the rise of popular movies by and for black people that white people like you and me watch to feel cool. He died at the 88. He began in New York City with Shakespeare in the Park and Off-Broadway. He was also a writer, a sculptor, a poet. But he will be remembered for two key films from the black exploitation era. He starred in The Mac, a seminal film in which Julian strove to become the biggest pimp in town, aided by his sidekick Richard Pryor and thwarted by racist cops and black power groups. Julian also wrote and co-produced the 1973 hit Cleopatra Jones, another ah. iconic character from the black exploitation era, one of the two or three like Shaft that has really continued on in the popular imagination. So cool career. Well, uh, and you have like one, two, four. Oh, five, I'm sorry. The, Il- the singer from Il Devo died, Carlos Marin. That's the Simon Cowell prefab group to take over for the three tenors. John Madden oh. died. John Madden died. This is cool. Video game legend John Madden has died at the age of 85. He was the face of the groundbreaking video game series Madden NFL. He insisted the game be as accurate as possible. They spent four years developing it. They had realistic playbooks, player stats, commentary, just like a real NFL game, and it worked. That game, that franchise, has generated $4 billion and counting with no end in sight. They've sold 250 million units to date. And this is crazy. Many players and coaches have cited this video game as an influence on literally playing the game, loving football, how they play it, how they learn from it. I mean, it's really been influenced. And apparently, this John Madden guy also did some coaching and NFL commentary, but I wouldn't know about that. Yeah, now, so he was the coach of the Oakland Raiders during their their dynasty uh, in the, I want to say the 80s uh, or 70s. I, I, for 10 years, he was the coach. But now I want to go back to something. And, of course, he was a, a broadcaster for 30 years oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. of football games. So he would, you know, be a commentator. Uh, he rode around the country in a bus because he didn't want, want to fly. And, you know, he that was part of his contract. Uh, and he would, like, bring people onto the bus and they'd shoot you know, segments of the shows on the bus. But I do want to point out one thing, and this is actually, this relates back to our subject, which is entertainment, essentially. When you watch a football game today, starting in about eh, maybe the last year or two, you will notice that when a touchdown gets scored, that they go to a camera that is on at field level, and it's very close up to the players. Uh, It's almost like at eye level with them. And the background is blurred because that is what the Madden football game did. Yep. Uh, normally, of course, you'd see everything from, you know, usually loge level. You know, you'd see everything from, you know. They, they influence how even football games are shown on television. Correct. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. That's very cool. Uh, s- s- actor Sally Ann Howes died. She played truly scrumptious in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. She died at 91. She had a lovely career, especially on stage, but she loves Julie Andrews. Uh, when Julie Andrews uh, stepped away from My Fair Lady in New York to do that show in London, uh, she stepped in and played the role of Eliza for almost a year. And then when Julie Andrews turned down Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, 
the movie because she thought it was too similar to Mary Poppins and not nearly as good enough. Uh, How snapped it up. So she was truly scrumptious and chitty chitty bang bang, her claim to fame. But she comes from acting stock. Her dad was a very big stage actor in the UK. They performed together in the stage version of Paint Your Wagon. And when she would stop the show every night with her big number, her father, her father would come on stage early for the next scene to try and upstage her and shut the applause down. (laughs) It's like, there's no, no quarter given, even for your child when it's theater, you know, she was Tony nominated for Brigadoon, did good work in stage work. And I saw her on stage late in her career. She came back to New York to perform in the off-Broadway musical, James Joyce's The Dead. It was really a good show. And so that's very cool to see. But tell me, Sperling, have you ever watched Sesame Street? I have, uh, because I know this particular episode is sponsored by the letter G. No, I haven't. <laughs> no. Well, G, is that G? What was the movie? Was the movie G-Force? I forget. Uh, no, 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 It I'm... was. It was. G-Storm. G-Storm is the uh, oh, okay. the, the Hong Kong film that, that opened up. So that's good. That's why the letter G was in your mind. That's right. Ses- exactly. Sesame Street. We got a guy here. His name is Stephen Lawrence, a composer and yeah. musical director. He died at 82. He scored some films like the baseball classic Bang the Drum Slowly. He was musical director and co-producer of the album Free to Be You and Me. This production come up, uh, thought up by Marlo Thomas, and it became an iconic 1970s TV special, but his legacy is the more than 30 years he spent at Sesame Street, where he composed more than 300 songs and music cues. Wow. That is a lot of music that is. when you think about it. Now, speaking of people who were beloved, we have two people uh, here. And the interesting thing about the first person, Joan Didion, she is uh, a, a you know literary legend, really, is that she is often associated with Eve Babbitts, who we talked about during the last episode, who was, they, they were both Los Angeles writers, and they would write essays about Los Angeles and magazine articles and uh, about, uh, you know. Sure, with, with the difference that Joan Didion was world famous and Eve Babbitt was barely known and, and, you know, had a late career resurgence and was her work was sort of rediscovered, but she was never at the, you know, oh, I don't, right, I don't right, think people absolutely. ever say Joan Didion. Oh, just like Eve Babbitts. Eve Babbitts was lucky to be remembered at all throughout most of her life. She wasn't remembered or no, well known, but as we said, Joan Didion introduced her to Rolling Stone, helped her get one of her first jobs. So, you know, pretty cool. So Eve Babbitts yeah, is everything. In fact, yeah. Eve Babbitts wrote in her, you know, dedicated her first book, to Joan Didion and Gregory Dunn, Didion's husband, for being everything I don't have to be. Because <laughs> Joan Didion was like far more popular. Uh, and, and, she, and, Twitter, she was so- like, and she was, you know, uh, responsible and worked hard. And Eve Babbitts was having fun. <laughs> yeah, know? she was out there. She was like, I could be foot loose. Yeah, uh, I, I saw somebody on Twitter said, uh, you know, Joan Didion lived one week past Eve Babbitt's as as a last like sticking it to Eve Babbitt's <laughs> way to stick it to her. Well, but, her, uh, yeah, her no, no, she yeah. her died. Her novel "Play It As It Lays" is a classic. She has many essay collections, including Slouching Towards Bethlehem and The White Album, which I thought was by the Beatles. Her screenplays that she wrote with her husband include uh, Panic in Needle Park, a big early hit for Al Pacino, True Confessions, probably the best movie she wrote, and the big hit. A Star is Born remake with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And then she had a late career, you know, blockbuster hit with her memoir about grief called The Year of Magical Thinking. That's the only one of her things I've read so far, maybe a few essays or articles, but I got a lot of reading to do. Looking forward to it. And that was recent, wasn't it? It was after her husband died. Yeah. And, and her daughter was sick and at the same time, very sick, and then ultimately died too. So it was just, yeah. It was a bad well, year. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. Uh, the phrase, oh no, 
was trending the other day. And right underneath that, and somebody else was trending, Betty White. Aww. Because, of course, the beloved Betty White, who had a career that spanned decades, uh, I want to say from like the 19th, I think her f- career was originally derailed. In the 40s. Because little, yeah, because of World War II. Like <laughs> she was like, I, I was on my way to making it, and then you guys had to start a war. Uh, and then, I mean, she came back in the 1950s. I mean, she was on television. She practically lived on television. And I realized that the, 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 the words, oh no, were were trending because so many people were like, "Oh no, oh. Betty White died." <laughs> That's and sweet. she was ninety nine, and and just just before uh, we, you know, just before Christmas, I saw on Celluloid Junkie that Fathom Events we were entering a, a press release from Fathom Events that they were going to do Betty White's one hundred birthday party in cinemas, and I thought. You know, when you're that old, maybe you shouldn't be planning things like that. <laughs> that would have been. I like, actually thought that. Yeah. Like, I thought, yeah, that's not a given, you know. So <laughs> her birthday would have been on January 17th. She was the first woman to produce a sitcom. That's pretty cool. The show Life with Elizabeth, which I think spun off from a sketch show. Uh, and when she had her variety show also, she included a black tap dancer. And there's a whole story in the LA Times about how the South was like, we're not carrying that show. You got that guy in the background who's tap dancing. <laughs> and, were, and she was like, sorry live with it deal with it he's not going and so you know that's pretty cool too but her tv career stretched from the 40s to the 2010s it included game shows sketch shows countless guest spots along with major roles in of course the sitcom hot in cleveland and emmy winning turns in the hugely popular golden girls and of course the mary tyler moore show one of the best sitcoms of all time now the golden girls are all together again because all the four lead women are now dead and i guess the secret to a long life is being in a hit show like golden girls or especially the mary tyler moore show it ended almost 45 years ago but in 2021 four of the core eight cast members have died Cloris Leachman in January, Gavin McLeod in May, Ed Asner in August, and Betty White on December 31st. They were all in their 90s. It's the curse of the Mary Tyler Moore show. No, She was probably like, I almost made it out. I almost <laughs> made it to 2022. Yes. But, you know, you, you know, she was uh, the oldest person to ever host Saturday Night Live back in 2010 when a Facebook group, like, kind of put mounted a campaign and called attention to Lauren Michaels and said, yeah, well, we could do this. And, and it was the highest rated show in two years for, yeah, for exactly. SNL. It was. It was a big hit. And she made out with Bradley Cooper. Yes. Was it Bradley Cooper or Ryan Reynolds? I, I know that I like, Ryan Reynolds. She had a Reynolds. feud with Ryan Reynolds. She had a feud with Ryan, a fake feud with Ryan Reynolds that they were doing on, on you know, social media. So that was a running gag. And uh, she was making out with Bradley Cooper on SNL. But you can go online and find lots of clip compilations of some of her great work. There's obviously tons of stuff from Golden Girls and Mary Tyler Moore, but they've got clips going back to the 40s, baby. So, you know, there's a lot to talk about. Well, now, the last show we did, uh, we talked about uh, the fact that Bruce Springsteen was like, uh, he was going to have a, a good Christmas uh, because <laughs> Santa of- Claus came to town for him to the tune of $600 million. He sold yeah. his catalog. That's right. 600. Yeah. And we were, I guess we, you, you said, oh, uh, you know, Springsteen, I don't, is the catalog worth that much? He doesn't get covered that much. And I thought, well, I guess, you know, he gets covered, but the covers aren't that popular. Maybe I know Dylan gets covered all the time. I think uh, the Beatles are covered like nonstop. So yeah, and somebody wrote into us. Well, tell us, read it out. 
Okay, well, well, Richard Pennington, he wrote into dirt at showbizsandbox.com. He wrote, uh, hey, guys, on the last show of last year, you said Bruce Springsteen's songs are hardly ever covered. I have a well actually for you. Uh, there's a really cool website out there called Secondhand Songs, uh, which we'll place links to in our show notes at showbizsandbox.com, which, by the way, uh, that's website. I didn't know about this website, so thank you, Richard. Good website. Anyway, that website tracks uh, all, all sorts of cover stuff, uh, you know, it tracks statistics based on ASCAP and other sources. Turns out you were right that Bob Dylan is heavily covered, coming in at the top with 352 songs. But Springsteen is in the top 10 at number eight with 186 songs. Not sure how Frank Zappa and Tom Waits made it on the list, even though I love both of them. Uh, here's the full list, and he listed it's it's Bob Dylan, 352, Paul McCartney, 331, John Lennon, 244, David Bowie, 220, Frank Zappa, 208, Tom Waits at number six for 196, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards back to back, uh, actually tied really at uh, at six and seventh, you know, and Bruce Springsteen, 186 songs. So actually, actually, uh, you know, technically, they're all tied. How, six, they, seven, how are they all tied? Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Bruce Springsteen are all 186 songs. Well, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are credited together on almost all their songs. So those are all yeah, small so songs. So so they're they're just sort of, it's redundant there. And John and Paul have a lot of songs in common too, in terms of but Paul has his solo stuff. I can't find this list on here when I'm looking really quickly. Uh, I'm not sure uh what they're saying. Are they saying that 350 plus different songs by Dylan have been covered? Or they're saying there's 352 covers of Dylan. You know, I'm not, I'm I don't not know. quite Springsteen 186 songs being covered. That seems a little high to me. That seems, that seems. I, I didn't even know he had 182. Well, exactly. That would be almost every song he's ever recorded. Um, that's very cool. I think it's great. I'm going to explore it further. It's an interesting website. Uh, and you oh, say, by the way, yeah, uh, before, before yeah, he I really forget, gets he, me on this. Yeah, yeah. This is where I'm absolutely wrong. Uh, he says, oh, and before I forget, you talked about Springsteen's Because the Night, written by Patti Smith. Well, technically. Being written for Patti Smith is for, what I for, said. For Pat, yeah. Uh, technically, she's one of the writers on the song. I did not know that, actually. Uh, however, the song's biggest success came from an acoustic cover done by 10,000 Maniacs in 1993 for an MTV Unplugged concert. That I knew that song was popular and that cover was popular. I did not know that it like outpaced the original. That's right. So he's totally right about that. I was wrong. Sexist me. I just assumed he had written it and that Patti Smith gave it to Patti Smith. Not quite. He had written basically, because the night, da 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 like he had nothing he had no lyrics he couldn't figure out this song but he had the melody and he was working on darkness on the edge of town and jimmy iovine was producing uh patty smith's patty smith's easter and he's like oh, i want to get her he was a big gig for him and he's like i want to give her a hit song you're not gonna do anything with that song he's like no i know i'm not going to yeah if she can figure out something to do with it so he gave her the melody gave her the demo basically she just had the title because the night and a melody and she wrote all the lyrics so all those lyrics are by patty smith so full credit to her for being a co-writer on that that song if not 70 percent of the writer so she really did that song and made it happen so good credit to her when i look at this list okay maybe he's at 186 covers or 186 different songs have been covered whatever the case is uh i still think that they're not as valuable covers 
I think that they're not covers that have generated big hits a lot, unlike Because the Night and Fire, which was covered by the Pointer Sisters, and Pink Cadillac, which was covered by Natalie Cole. I don't think he generates a lot of hit songs, whereas like Dylan in the 60s and 70s was all over the radio with the Birds and a million other people. Paul McCartney and John Lennon, ditto. David Bowie, by the way, just sold his catalog for about $250 million. His estate has sold off the David Bowie uh, publishing catalog, I believe, for about $250 million to Warner Chapel, which is about a million dollars a song. He's got 220 covers here, so that's that's pretty good. But yeah, Frank Zappa at 208 songs? Like, who the hell covers a Frank Zappa song? I love him. I almost interviewed him. Uh, he's an interesting, fascinating artist, but I'm still going to look in a little further to see what exactly uh, they're detailing to, here. To answer your question, uh, it's 100 different songs. Uh, so, like, for instance, 121 artists have covered Born in the USA. Springsteen's probably his most popular song, along with Thunder Road. No, well, uh, no, not, not, uh, which, which, what, what song? Uh, Born in the USA. No, that's not even good. Dancing in the Dark is a much bigger hit for him. Born in the USA. That wasn't. actually had 100 artists cover it as well. So 121 artists for Born in the USA, 100 artists. So what for, is, what is it? So they're saying there's 186 songs that have been covered by different people? No, 100. Well, no, the list here says 186 songs. Bruce Springsteen, 100. So they're saying multiple artists have covered at least uh, all of these 186 different songs. Yes. That's, that seems hard, but I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. We'll look more into it. It looks like an interesting resource. You were absolutely right about Because the Night. Thanks for correcting me on that. Uh, I still think he's more valuable as a touring artist, but you have slapped me down. Like I said, I know people have covered his entire album, Nebraska. I've seen that done a couple times. I'm sure Born to Run has been covered by people as well and Darkness, and there's been lots of tributes to him. He's certainly popular. I don't think he generates lots of hits for other people, unlike Dylan, The Beatles, uh, Stevie Wonder, and David Bowie, perhaps. But we shall see. Uh, and, oh, it's... Okay. I Here it is. 170 different songs have been covered uh, not by Bruce Springsteen, but of Bruce Springsteen's songs. Some of them by only like one artist, you know, like or two artists. Uh, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows, for instance, uh, was covered. That's a Beatles and these song. Might be, That's a Beatles song. Uh, it says here uh, it might be a, a different uh, a different song. Uh, or Valentine's Day, which has like okay, uh, that, that, three artists covered. Three artists covered it, right. But probably none of the none of them were like substantial hits, I don't think. No, God, no, no, no. Right, right. No, they may not be. Wrong. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting that he's so high up. So I'm definitely wrong about that because I would have thought he, I, if you'd asked me to say, well, anybody come, well, okay, I'm sure he gets covered, and, but not that much, but it's a lot higher than I expected. So I was wrong. Well, I can't believe I, I actually made it through this show. Yeah, uh, thank you for getting it out. Good job. Uh, but you know what? Uh, if you want to see if I make it to the next show, uh, then you should should you really should subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us any one of those podcast catchers or aggregators or player, whatever they call it these days, whatever the the young whippersnappers call. Wow, I really we really should have ended five minutes ago, I think. Yes, um, yes, yes. But hey, you know what? You can rate and review us in some, not all of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do. Uh, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as ways to subscribe to us, that can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find those ways to contact us, like Richard Pennington, who 
wrote to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Giltz can be found on, on he, well, he's online, and every week he's got something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's thankyouforbeingafriend.com. Aw. Oh, is that available? That's the, the- it, it is. You can buy it. Yeah, somebody owns it, but you can buy it from okay. them for lots of money. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, of course, uh, it, it is the theme song to the Golden Girls. That's right. But you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 